We'll hear argument next in case 07463, Summers versus Earth Island Institute. Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit's affirmance of a nationwide injunction in this case is contrary to bedrock principles of Article III standing, of the availability and scope of judicial review under the Administrative Procedure Act, and the granting of equitable relief. As this case was decided by the District Court and as it comes to this Court, it involves a standalone challenge to two regulations that govern the procedures to be followed by the Forest Service in deciding whether to approve individual site-specific activities in national forests. The two regulations provide that site-specific actions that are excluded from either an environmental impact requirement or even an EA under under NEPA are also not subject to special notice and comment and administrative appeal provisions applicable to the Forest Service. The Ninth Circuit sustained the District Court's nationwide injunction as to those procedural regulations standing alone, not as part of a challenge to a specific site-specific activity. The Court did so, moreover, on the basis of an affidavit from one member of one of the organizations who could not begin to establish standing under this Court's decisions by showing an imminent injury by virtue of harm to a site-specific activity. And the Court affirmed affirmed the nationwide injunction applicable to all forests with respect to all projects listed in ten categories identified by the District Court, including national forests and projects that don't even — that are not even included within that one declarant's generalized interest in certain national forests. For this multiple combination of — combination of multiple reasons, we think the Ninth Circuit's decision cannot stand. First, as with respect to standing, uh, the — the one declaration on which both the District Court and the Court of Appeals, uh, relied is the declaration of Mr. Benzman, which is reproduced in the petition, uh, appendix. And on pages 70A and 71A are the only allegations of uh, that go to injury at all with respect to the, the particular regulations at issue here. From paragraph 15 on, 70, the bottom of 71A on, there's are allegations concerning other regulations that are no longer at, is, at issue. Standing itself, uh, I mean, well, it's a little unusual. Suppose, I mean, Congress here has passed a statute, and the statute specifically aims at a class of litigants. And it says to the class of litigants, if you're a member of it, we're telling you what we want the agency to do, and that is to promulgate a certain appeal procedure. Now, if you are a member of the class that frequently litigates and you frequently take advantage of that procedure, why aren't you hurt as a litigant, at least enough for Article Three? And we know as far as prudential standing is concerned, Congress wanted to give you uh, standing, so I think it would take care of that. Are you saying, no matter, just normal litigants in the courts who reappear time and time again in certain kinds of cases don't have standing to challenge a procedural rule if Congress under Article Three and Congress specifically tells them they can? Uh, Congress has not specifically said that they may challenge well, which part a rule in court. Let's, let's imagine that Congress did. Congress did say, by the way, Lawyers who have handled 17 tort cases in the last year where the value has been more than $500,000 and who will sign an affidavit saying they intend to to continue in that branch may appeal from the court's promulgation of the following general rule, da-da-da. The Constitution prohibits Congress from doing that? Well, first of all, I I don't think it could be lawyers. It it has has to be a party. Right. Those who see the same fine, I think there would be be substantial doubt if uh, that Congress could do that, because let let me explain why. And this goes to a point that Justice Scalia was making in the prior argument. Procedural wrong is not Article Three injury. The injury in this case comes from the application of the regulation in a specific site-specific. You mean activity. Article Three and in Westminster, at Westminster, when Westminster in whatever they had, they must have had some procedural rules, and sometimes they'd have general procedural rules. I don't know what the history is. I could look it up, but I'd be amazed if the lawyers at that time or the clients who had certain cases were not permitted to challenge those rules as contrary to some other rules. 
Do we well, know the answer to that? If, if Congress — In a particular case, I suppose. But could, no, 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 generally. They say you have a special procedure. Here's what you can generally challenge our rules. Well, if I could make, again, several points. Congress has not passed such a statute. And, and there may be room in particular situations for Congress to pass a special statute that would identify particular interests that could then be taken into account in terms of whether Article III standing would be established. Okay, then your answer is, if Congress says you can do it, have a general challenge to people who generally appear. Your answer is, if Congress says they can do it, Article Three doesn't stop. No, I, I, when I said that would be a different question. Oh, I, I, I'm, the answer to that different question. Well, it, 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 it might depend on a particular. It might depend on a particular case. In, in, in the Whitman case, the court said that the, the statutes providing for direct review of regulations eliminate prudential limitations on ripeness in that case, but they wouldn't eliminate the bedrock principle. Uh, of, of standing, it would be necessary to show a threatened injury. Now, it is, Mr. It is Mr. Needler, don't we have to assess the need for for showing a specific threatened injury on a on, on a somewhat elastic standard in a case like this? Because the claim is made on the other side that if we do not allow, if we do not find standing to challenge the regulation per se. There are going to be a number of specific instances which, in practical terms, can never be challenged when that regulation is applied. Uh, there, there were one or two instances, as I recall, uh, of, of cases in, in which, uh, on your theory, there, 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 there could be no uh, challenge because the announcement of the action was made on the very date that the action was taken. So that if we do not find sufficient elasticity in standing to allow a challenge to the regulation on behalf of people of the sort that Justice Breyer described, there will, in fact, be a preclusion of any challenge to a lot of specific actions. What's, what's your answer to that? Um, so, several answers, if I may. In the declaration on which standing was based in this case, that claim is not made. That, and that's the only declaration that was made, that, that was submitted before the district court entered its judgment. There was an argument made assume like that the, after. Assume after for the sake of argument that it is made. Okay. That, should then be then it, it, it's conceivable in a particular case that a person who, who claims to be injured by that could sue to prevent that injury, but it would not be a challenge to the regulation as regulation. It would be because specific threatened site-specific activities uh, in which there would not be notice given in advance or there wouldn't be, wouldn't be time, threatened to injure them. It would again be a challenge to the application. No, but your, your response to that is going to be, I presume, uh, that in fact, absent a specific activity uh, before the court, uh, the, the challenge is not right. So that if you're going to stick to your position uh, elsewhere in this case, they're going to fail in that enterprise. And, and, and that may, that, that may well be right, but that would be a separate question. I, I, don't, How, I, I, don't, understand, I don't understand your response. If, if someone uh, has an interest in, in stopping a particular action that would be governed by, by, uh, by this general regulation, Surely that person could and, — and is, is threatened uh, proximately by that action. That person could certainly bring an action seeking to stop the action on the ground that this regulation is invalid. That, that was my that was And my, and that, that was would my govern point. that particular action, but it would also be, be a precedent for invalidating the regulation in other cases. I, uh, presumably other courts would — would similarly say that the regulation is invalid. Right. That was the point I was trying to make. And if, if, I, if I could, explain, I if I could explain the same may point. I, Mr. Nidra, may I ask this one follow-up question, because I want to be sure I understand your position. Supposing the plaintiff has, uh, in his declaration cites three or four cases in which the action was taken so promptly they didn't have notice in order to object. And then he says, but so I, it, they always are too fast for me. Now I want to, want to do just what the plaintiff is trying to do in this case. Would he have standing then? I, I, if, there was, if there was a category of cases in which that was likely to happen, most of the, most of the pro, that, that he may well have standing in that situation to challenge maybe an upcoming, it, it's an unusual APA suit because you, 
because only final agency action can be challenged. But conceivably, but a would, threatened final agency action. You would agree that with that scenario, he would have standing if his only injury in this is exactly the same as the plaintiff in this case. No, the, inju- the injury would come from the threatened on-the-ground activity, but not the absence But he doesn't know that in advance. That's the premise of Justice Stevens' question, and it's the premise of mine. They're, the point is being made by them uh, that this happens so fast that the threat has been realized before they can respond to it. If, if, I, if I could make a broader point here, because there, there may be certain categories, certain instances in which that might happen, but it is, it is the exception, not the rule. And, and the well, let's, uh, no, let's but, I'll, I'll, I'll assume for the sake of argument it is the exception, not the rule. But, but let's assume we have got the exceptional case. Would there be standing? It, in the exceptional case, there probably would be standing. So that but, if in Justice Stevens' hypo, one could show that there had been three or four or five instances of action so fast it was impossible to challenge it, there would, with that as a predicate, be standing to challenge the regulation as these people are trying to challenge. Not, not no, and that, that was okay. the point I was not not in the way they are trying to challenge it because they are trying to challenge it across the board. Tell us how they could challenge it then. The, Tell us the right way. What they would have to do is bring a, a on a particular a particular national forest where a particular person visited and visited a particular area, and there has been a pattern of particular activities that occurred without his knowing. He, he, in that situation, he might well have standing to challenge a similar. But if it's the forest next door that he's worried about, and they have not tried a a, a kind of uh, a quickie lumbering action in the forest next door before, he would not be able to challenge. I, I, that's correct. Uh, it, it, the the uh, standing has to focus on the particular site-specific place where the individual has visited, and if there's a repeated pattern of a similar type of activity. Mr. Nito, uh, why, why, why is that so? If I'm reading this ARA statute, and it seems to give people a right to notice, an opportunity to comment, and to undertake an administrative appeal. Why isn't this statute that says Interested public, you have those rights. You have essentially a right to a seat at the table. Why isn't this statute like FOIA, like the statute that the Court considered in the Aikens case, in the FEC case involving information about APAC? These were people who said, we are concerned about saving off forests, that's why Congress said that before these actions occur, there should be notice to the interested public, comment, and we are being cut out from that seat at the table. It doesn't do us any good after the project has been authorized. We want to be there when the decision is made to take action. If I could respond in several, several ways. First of all, the Due Process Clause imposes uh, limitations on agency action, but that doesn't mean that, that somebody can go into court and challenge agency procedures as violative of the Due Process Clause until there is a specific proceeding going on uh, and, and completed in but which this, there has been a statute, violation. The statute says before there is a specific action, you have a right to notice, comment, and administer. There, there is no indication at all in the passage of that statute that Congress meant to confer a judicially enforceable right uh, to, to obtain those without the, complying with the usual uh, APA provisions for judicial so Suppose, suppose the statute says anybody in the country can sue to stop a violation of the Due, due Process Clause. Would that statute be valid? No, you would, you would have to you would have to show particular injury and the, the Article Three requirements cannot be uh, eliminated by Congress. That that is, that is correct, and 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 there is no indication at all that in this statute, which was just intended to modify the Forest Service's intent to change its internal decision-making processes, uh, and Congress wanted to restrict what uh what the forest service was going to do that it thereby meant to change the na- the fundamental nature of the agency's own internal why regulations is it, why is which it different not- from foia 
mean, there, anybody can request anything. You don't have to show anything beyond — well, you don't have to show curiosity. You say the statute gives me a right to ask well, and, and information. And the the uh, Forest Service has has procedures for notifying people of of proposed projects uh, that were in fact invoked in this case, and we point this out in our brief. There are really t- two separate types of procedures. One is the so-called schedule of proposed actions, which includes all the actions in which there would be a decision memo issued by the Forest Service, which. It includes at least all of the projects that respondents are claiming should be should be covered. That is published quarterly. It, it is available on the web. It is also available in person. Uh, one of respondents' declarants here on behalf of the Sierra Club says that by using that so-called SOPA, that schedule, he reviews every project in all 11 national forests in California. There is also, in addition to the SOPA, and, and, and we'll submit comments when necessary, in addition to the SOPA, uh, the Forest Service has what are called scoping regulations, which in which every on-the-ground project is looked at to see whether it need, there needs to be uh, NEPA compliance through an EA or an EIS, but also what is the nature of public participation that is required. In that scoping process, the Forest Service, the local, the local personnel of the Forest Service will look to see who is interested in the particular project. The way this works on the ground is an organization like the Sierra Club, through it, its declarant uh, in the, in the uh, joint appendix, will have somebody monitoring the SOPA, the schedule of proposed events, will say, I, I see that you have a, a, a certain project listed. I'm interested in that. Please notify me when you're about to take action to uh, thin this, this area or restore this burned area. Please notify me. When that happens, the Forest Service then sends out a letter, a so-called scoping letter, asking for comments. So this is not a situation in which the, the, the organizations or the declarants in this case have been excluded. To the contrary, these are all people who play, pay very, very close attention to what the Forest Service is doing. The one declarant on, on, on which the uh, Court of Appeals relied for standing on page 71A of the, of the petition appendix, he specifically refers to the only specific projects he refers to are timber projects, and the injunction here goes much broader than timber projects. But he said that, for example, in the Allegheny National Forest, they put out scoping comments for a series of 20 timber sales. He knew about those timber sales, and, the, and, and he was able to comment on them. And the, the, the declarant on whom standing was based to challenge the Burnt Ridge Project, which is no longer in this case. In that case, the Forest Service, and this is in the administrative record, sent out 1,300 letters to people who had expressed an interest in that project um, before it was undertaken. Mr. Martirosian, uh, who, who also monitors forest projects. But any one of those that brought suit? Anyone who anyone who claimed to have used that area could have brought suit. Some of some of those some of the some of the people people submit well, comments. Well, I mean, but the, the the letter alone, I don't know what the criteria were for for, for the addresses. There, those were people who had expressed an interest in the in the oh, project. Oh, okay. And and uh, Mr. Martirosian submitted a 23-page comment to the Forest Service with respect to the Burnt Ridge Project, and that's the other declarant. These are people whose profession or avocation, serious avocation is following the Forest Service. So this is not an instance in which, in which notice is not generally uh, furnished. Uh, I'd like to make the same point I was making about standing in connection with the, with the Administrative Procedure Act as well. Section 702 of the, of the APA says that a person who is aggrieved by agency action is in, may seek judicial review thereof. The, the agency action that is subject to judicial review has to be the agency action that causes the injury. The procedural regulation does not cause the injury. It is the on-the-ground activity, the site-specific decision, the, the action, the agency action approving the site-specific action that uh, causes the injury. That is what the person is entitled to judicial review of. Then you're That's saying a- that this statute is just unenforceable because the statute is supposed to operate before the project. It, it, it's by no means un- unenforceable. In the Burnt Ridge project that was at issue in this in this case, uh, the plaintiffs 
challenged the Burnt Ridge project when it was completed on a number of grounds, that it, w- that it was not properly categorically excluded from NEPA, that it didn't comply with the forest plan, but also that it had been approved without complying with the, uh, with the ARA appeals procedures. And that was before the project was undertaken? Yes. That injun- an injunction, and a preliminary injunction was obtained, and, and tellingly, and I think this is also instructive for ripeness purposes, there was a PI issued, but not because of a violation of the, a- of the ARA. The, the district court concluded that the, uh, there was a likelihood of success on some of these other objections, substantive objections to the project, not procedural objections. Uh, then joined it, and then the Forest Service withdrew the project, and the, and the plaintiffs dropped their challenge. I'm, I'm pursuing this because I'm actually having a hard time with it. Suppose, suppose Congress passes a statute, and the statute says every citizen of the United States has a right to receive notice of a certain set of Forest Service actions. Everybody. We want everybody who wants it to have notice. Now, if somebody really wants that notice and they don't get it, can they sue? At, at some point, that would begin to look like FOIA, yes. But, but, yes, all right. But, so but, I'm, but, making, but I, I'm trying to make it look like FOIA. That's but, just but, what I'm trying to do. And you say, yes, they probably could, at least if you're just no. supposed to get a piece of paper that says notice. No. Right, now, suppose Congress says, uh, if you can show you're the kind of person who regularly asks and needs such notices, and if a regulation is promulgated interpreting this statute, you can challenge that reg prior to enforcement. Now, does that violate Article 3? I, 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 believe, it, I believe it probably does, unless you can show that, uh, that there's an, an imminent. Uh, an, so suppose they did this, suppose they said, each agency has the legal power to promulgate regs interpreting FOIA as to when you get the thing, when you don't. And moreover, people who are regular FOIA requesters can challenge those regs prior to enforcement. What about that one? Conceivably. But, I, but, but, I, but what, what I'd I'm like looking for con- a principle that's going to Well, Congress has not done that here, and this is why I wanted to shift to the APA, because th- this is subject to judicial review under the general standards of the APA. Even if we can assume that there was Article — that there would be Article Three standing to challenge a, 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 threaten, a, a threaten another one in a series of similar projects like <laughs> off-road vehicle use or something, which might occur before someone would be able to, to — uh, to, to challenge it. That doesn't apply to timber projects and other things that take much longer uh, to plan. Mr. Needler, I don't even agree with you that a, that a, a citizen-wide notice provision confers uh, <coughs> standing because it, it's close to the APA. No, I didn't. It, I, 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 a, a close, close to the uh, uh, FOIA. In, in FOIA, an individual citizen demands a certain document which the law entitles that person to. This is a concrete deprivation, right, I, something concrete. And, and I, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean to concede that there would be standing. Well, what you were doing it, and I certainly don't. No, no, because you're right. And 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 here, uh, the, the agency's procedures allow somebody to request to be put on the mailing list about a particular project, and that's the way you make it. You make it known, and in fact, that happened here. And also, the one declarant. I mean, it, it's perhaps instructive. The only other kind of notice, other than this sort of. In, um, situation where a person says, I want to be notified when a particular project is going, is going to take place. The only other form of notice is publication in a local newspaper of record that each national forest has, which shows that this is, that this notice provision is localized with respect to people who are going to be aware of what's going on in the forest and who are following it. But the declarant, Mr. Benzman, when he, when for another purposes is uh, noticing or is, is pointing out this publication requirement in a local newspaper says that his organization doesn't want to subscribe to local newspapers that would be too much of a burden for them to have to follow what's going on in newspapers that's the uh, that's the only kind of additional notice the statute ever provides for the other kind of notice is the notice you get if you've ex- previously expressed an interest in the project in which you you've basically demanded something along the FOIA lines that Justice Scalia was referring to. But, but again, back, back to the, you could call it ripeness, you could call it the proper subject of, of judicial review. As this Court said in National Wildlife Federation, uh, based on Section 702 of the APA, uh, ordinarily a regulation may be challenged 
only when it has been reduced to manageable proportions by a concrete application of the regulation to the individual's particular circumstances. It's the application to the person's circumstances that gets challenged. In this context, it would be the application of the regulation that says there is no right of appeal uh, in connection with the approval of a site-specific activity. If you think the project was, a, was approved in violation of the ARA because you weren't given a right, after you got your notice, you weren't given a right to appeal, then you could challenge that in court on the ground that it was approved without following the agency's procedures. Your, your friend on the other side <coughs> says that that doesn't make too much sense because the issue in every case is going to be the same, a purely legal issue, and so you're waiting for the application um, doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I don't think it is a purely legal issue. Uh, they, the uh, respondents concede that not all projects are subject to this statute. And the, the district question court is, is where do you draw the line? And, and, that, and, and that's why it can't be a, a purely legal question. As soon as you — and the district court acknowledged that environmentally insignificant projects are not covered by the Act. And so that requires an, an as-applied determination as to whether a particular type of project or even the particular project is one that that is that is covered by the act and not only that uh, i thought that you you said the government's position is that the line is to be drawn uh in for cases that don't require either an eis or an ea those in those cases you don't have to do this notice comment appeal thing and i thought the other side is saying no that's the wrong place to draw the line. It would be the same thing in every case. If from the government's point of view, no environmental impact statement, no environmental assessment required, no notice and comment. And they say you put the line in the wrong place. But, but that doesn't answer where the line ought to be. And even if the government is wrong as to a particular project, that means the line has to be somewhere else. It may be that certain kinds of timber projects should be subject to appeal, but that doesn't mean that some other uh, road maintenance projects should be subject uh, to appeal, if I may reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Mr. Kenna. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this facial challenge to the Appeals Reform Act regulations could have been brought outside the context of the Burnt Ridge Project as long as we had shown that it had been applied to a project and continued to be applied to the plaintiffs on an ongoing basis. What if, what if, there, what if there was not a regulation on the subject, but the agency, by its constant practice, applies a certain uh, a certain procedure in all of these cases would would you have a, 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 the, the power in the abstract to challenge the agency's consistent application of a certain procedure you I would could say certainly do it in a particular case if the agency did something that, that that was unlawful you could certainly challenge it but let's assume you don't have a particular case you just object to the fact that in all of its cases the agency is doing this thing that is wrong would you have standing to challenge that there's the question of ripeness and standing i think need to be treated a little differently for that as far as the ripeness question uh, i think it would be much more difficult case than here but i i would think that you could do that in you certain think you have standing you would have to show, as Your Honor has indicated, Your, your that complaint is, I don't like the way the agency behaves. Not on that pure basis, no. You would have to show that, uh, or we would have to show, uh, some concrete harm from where it's been applied to ah. the plaintiffs. Well, wh wh why do you make a difference with respect to the regulation? Why, why does the mere fact that this, this agency lawlessness happens to be reflected in a regulation, why does that suddenly alter the the standing calculus. You've either been harmed or you haven't been harmed. Well, Justice Scalia, I don't think it changes the standing calculation. I think it does change the ripeness and final agency action, especially questions somewhat, makes it much more clear. But we don't rely on procedural injury here, even though I think there is uh, potentially room for it along the lines of the Freedom of well, Information the Ninth Act. Circuit, the Ninth Circuit relied on it at least as an alternative ground, correct? Well, I think what the Ninth Circuit did was similar to what the Court did uh, recently in the Winkleman versus Parma School District case, where most of the discussion was about the procedural harms that the parents of the autistic school children were suffering. There was only one brief sentence tying it to the concrete harm, but it did tie it to the concrete harm. And I think 
That's what the Ninth Circuit did here. And certainly the district court very much went into tying the procedural harm to the on-the-ground harm, and that's what it based its decision on. Counsel, I'd like to read just one sentence to you from the National Wildlife Federation case, because I think it's the biggest hurdle you face. It's on page 15 of the government's brief. It says, a regulation is not ordinarily considered the type of agency action ripe for judicial review under the APA until the scope of the controversy has been reduced to more manageable proportions and its factual components fleshed out by some concrete action applying the regulation to the claimant's situation. How do you — it seems like a high hurdle for you to surmount. Mr. Chief Justice, I think that needs to be read in combination with the footnote 2 to that decision, which says, of course, if you have a regulation applying a particular measure across the board, I think what it's — Well, that's the Abbott Labs exception, isn't it? I mean, I don't think anybody suggests that that's applicable here. No, I don't think that's the — I think the Abbott Labs exception is an exception to where the plaintiff cannot show that the regulation has been applied to its situation yet. Well, that's when it's his primary conduct is nonetheless going to be affected. Right. You know, drug companies have to do something. Well, they don't — you know, they have to do it before um, uh, they can, can — they don't have to wait till they're sent to jail to say that their conduct has been affected. Yes. But I think whereas here the regulation has been applied to the plaintiffs on an ongoing basis — it's conceded that it was applied thousands of times nationwide. But you've not pointed to a particular fact under any of these affidavits when it was applied to any of the plaintiffs. In, uh, in, what, the, in what the National Wildlife Federation case said, some concrete action applying the regulation to the claimant's situation. Well, we have the Burnt Ridge Project itself. And then once we've shown standing, it becomes a matter of... You haven't of shown any standing with respect to the Burnt Ridge, Burnt Ridge Project on an ongoing basis, because that's been settled. It's out the, uh, it's out the door. Right? right. I think the, you know, the, the court's initial standing analysis is at the time the complaint is filed. So it's in, in for a penny, in for a pound. If you've no. shown standing with respect to discrete action D, you can challenge A, B, and C? I, no, Your Honor. I would respectfully say that the focus is on the beginning. And then, as, the, as this Court said last term in Davis versus FEC, then it becomes a matter of mootness, and between that case and, and the Laidlaw case, that's a lower st- hurdle. And so once we had the standing, and the Martyrosian Declaration uh, is worth looking at because it talks about harm from the Burnt Ridge Project itself, which the government concedes, as well as from application of, being, of the regulations to be denied uh, notice, comment, and appeal throughout the Sequoia National Forest. I, I think you never completed your answer uh, in commenting on the National Wildlife Federation statement uh, with the reference to footnote 2. What, what is it that footnote 2 tells us uh, in light of which we must read what the Chief uh, Justice quoted? Well, the footnote 2 says, of course, if you have a particular regulation applied to a particular to uh, a category of circumstances across the board, of course you may challenge it. And I think that Is the that court- all it says? No. I think it, it speaks of categories across the board that affect, that immediately, concretely affect the person complaining of the regulation, which is the case in, 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 in these areas where you have a regulation requiring drug comp- companies to have certain, uh, on pain of criminal penalty to print certain things on labels. That immediately affects them. I think that's what footnote two was about, not, not, not about any regulation that, that, that is across the board. That wouldn't make any sense. Where is footnote two? Let's read it. There's, Good. there's many cases where it was not an effect on primary conduct, yet a facial challenge was permitted. Uh, in fact, this Court has never rejected before a facial challenge to a regulation that's published in the Code of Federal Regulations where it's been applied on an ongoing basis. So in Sullivan versus Zebley, it was child disability benefits. It was a benefit-conferring regulation, which said we see no reason to uh, force as-applied challenges instead of a uh, facial challenge. You have uh, Thomas East versus Union Carbide, which was not a regulation telling Union Carbide how it had to manufacture its pesticides, but rather how it would affect arbitration, uh, its arbitration when it got into disputes, which is like National Park's case, which was held unripe not because of that fact, but because it had not yet been applied. When you look at all of these cases, 
that rejects facial challenges. It's where either the regulation has not been, pl- been applied and is not, and then the court gets to the question of whether it affects primary conduct. Their, pro- their problem they're asking you on this, which is, was at least a problem for me, why I think it's tough on ripeness, is because the government is saying to you, look, you want to challenge it outside the context of a particular action that you don't like. Well, there's never going to be an action, never going to be such an action that we're going to take that you won't find out about, that you will not be able to challenge in that context if you're really hurt. There isn't one. You can't name one that's ever been or imagine one that ever will be. Okay? Now, is that so? Uh, no, Justice Breyer, that's not so. The Joint Appendix at page 101 discusses an instance where Mr. Bensman did not get notice at all. The issue with the schedule... Right, you see where they're going next. And if, if you suppose that... The thing you just told me to has problems, or suppose it's pretty hard to find one. Then the, uh, why this, I think, has never been decided, and why it's difficult, is I'd start with Abbott Labs and say there are three considerations. How easy is it now to solve the legal problem? Here, perfectly easy. Nothing's going to change. Factor two, how likely is it that they'll work with this legal rule and change it around here? Zero. But three, what kind of harm is it going to cause to the plaintiff if you deny him relief now? And they're saying here, that's also zero or next to zero. So what do you do if the factor that cuts one way is zero and the factor that cuts the other way is zero? Now I have, or near zero. And I have to admit, I've never seen a case on that. I, I don't know if there's been one before, and I don't know exactly what to do. And if you can uh, go read that appendix, maybe I can escape the zero. Well, I think even apart from the, from the appendix, even apart from the assertion that there are, uh, the fact that there are certain actions that will receive no notice, I think the fact of the matter is we did what the Court has instructed us to do, and that is we brought our facial challenge in a concrete example with the Burnt Ridge Timber Sale Project. Now, it's passed. Now it becomes a question of mootness. And I think the mootness question is easier to solve because the Court has said that it's a lesser hurdle than standing. And we have showed through the Bensman Declaration that it's continuing to be applied to the plaintiffs on an ongoing basis, that they suffer harm by not being able to get these procedures which cause them on the ground harm because the forest is not uh, protected as well as it would be with. Council, I, I now have footnote two. And it refers, as you say, to a particular measure that applies across the, the board to all individual classifications. It goes on to say, which is final, and has become ripe for review in the manner we discuss in the text. Then we say, or Justice Scalia says, it can, of course, be challenged under the APA by a person adversely affected. And, although that may have the effect when they get a general decision uh, invalidating the program, it says, but that is quite different from permitting a generic challenge to all aspects of the program as though that itself constituted a final agency action. So you still have to become ripe for review in the manner discussed, which was the sentence that I read to you earlier, and the challenge can only be brought by a person adversely affected. I don't see how footnote 2 undermines the sentence I read to you at all. Well, in that footnote, it's, it's saying it's quite different from permitting a generic challenge to all aspects of the land withdrawal review program. And I think that was the same problem in Ohio forestry, where you had this broad program, lots of facts to sort through and apply. But the, the, the opinion in Ohio forestry said, of course, though, if the plan had cut out someone's right to object to trees being cut, that would be the kind of action that would be challengeable. And so I think what that later part is talking about in National Wildlife is saying this isn't the kind of action we allow challenges to. It's not final agency action. It's well, we allow it says, it says if it's become ripe for review in the manner discussed in text. In other words, if it has been applied to a particular individual adversely affected, then, quote, a person adversely affected may bring a challenge. I mean, I don't — that seems to me to be a restatement 
of the sentence I read you earlier. But that gets us to the standing question. And here, the Martyrosian Declaration showed he was affected both with regard to the Burnt Ridge Project and other projects on the Sequoia National Forest. We have the Bensman Declaration that talks about how he was harmed in his local forest from not being able to comment on timber sales. And we have the subsequent declarations. And I would also point out that in the Lujan versus Defenders case, both in the Note 8 and in uh, Justice Kennedy's concurrence, there's a discussion about how in uh, Robertson versus Metho Valley, for instance, a standing declaration didn't even need to be raised because it was obvious that, in that case, that the plaintiffs were amongst the injured because they were a local group in their local forest. You know, here we have an assertion, uh, uncontroverted by the government, that these are being applied on every forest on an ongoing basis. It's, it's stipulated to that. To contend that the Sierra Club is not injured, especially in light of the declaration. That would be like a footnote to the general program. Yes, they're saying these types of activities, we don't do the notice and comment and appeal. That's the general program. But you have to wait till it's applied to a particular individual who's adversely affected. Well, all I can say, Your Honor, is I thought we did that by bringing it in the context of the Burnt Ridge sale, and then if, it's if a matter you of had, If you had had a ruling on where you draw the line in the Burnt Ridge case, then that would have been precedent for all these other cases. But it was settled, right? So you didn't get a determination. Yes, Your Honor. We never brought an as-applied challenge to these regulations in the context of the Burnt Ridge sale. But what you're, you're seeking a different line, and by the way, I don't know what the line is that you're seeking. The, the government says if you don't need an EA, then you don't have to give notice, comment, etc. What would be your standard for when you need notice and comment? Well, it's right in the language of the Appeals Reform Act. There's two uh, parts that are important. One is it says a proposed decision implementing a forest plan shall be made subject to notice and comment. And then Section C states that any decision approving such an action shall be subject to appeal. So you have two elements, that there's a decision approving something and it implements a forest plan. Now, that's the way it worked under the Forest Service before the Appeals Reform Act was passed and what Congress meant to keep in place substantively with a different procedure through the ARA. So a Christmas tree permit, for instance, an individual Christmas tree permit is exempt, not because it's insignificant. We've never conceded, and that's what the whole merits were about. That it you need a permit to have a Christmas tree? Where, where is this? Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. So if I you want to go and cut your own Christmas tree. I know what you're talking about. You know, I get one every year. I just go down to the local Craigers hardware store. I pay my $7 to the clerk. There's no exercise of discretion. And you can go and cut your own tree. Now, that is exempt not because it's environmentally insignificant, which you know, it probably is in most cases, but because there's no decision approving it. And that's the way it's always worked. And that's where we think the line needs to be drawn. Although, of course, the merits were not raised by the government here. You, you cut down a tree in a national forest without approval? <laughs> I did get the permit, Your Honor. Oh. I think the other kinds of cases that are useful to look at are, for instance, uh, Blum versus Varetsky for standing. And that was the, the nursing home case where uh, nursing home residents that had been denied, they'd been sent to lesser uh, nursing home facilities, they were on assistance, uh, challenged the way in which that was being handled. And the court said, you know, the historical basis for these plaintiffs is that they've been denied their They've been in these situations, and it's perfectly likely that they're going to be in again. Another case would be the Northeastern Florida Chapter of Contractors versus Jacksonville case, which I'm afraid we did not put in our brief. But that was where victims of reverse discrimination had been regular bidders on construction contracts. And they were held to have standing because it was obvious that they were going to suffer these harms again. And there was not even a discussion of the declarations. Well, Here we that, that, that's not unusual. I mean, I mean, standing looks not just to harm it has already been suffered, but that harm, harm that is imminent. And if these people are regular bidders and, and they, they say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm likely to bid on this next project, that's fine. But these people are 
you, you don't know any specific project. It's just people interested in forests throughout the United States. Well, it's quite different from saying, I am about to suffer harm, imminent harm to me. I, 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 don't, I don't see any, you know, anything except in the case that was settled that, uh, that has that kind of a connection. Well, Justice Scalia, I would suggest that the, the way those two cases I discussed, the plaintiffs were treated, is similar to here, where you have members who, uh, it's uncontroverted that they are constantly using the national forests and commenting on forest appeals. And we have a reference to 20 specific timber sales. They weren't mentioned by name, but it's always been this Court's jurisprudence to elevate form I mean, elevate substance over form. So it's not a creative pleading exercise that can either get you in or out of standing. It's a common-sense inquiry. Uh, tell me the two cases, again, that, that you're relying on for, for this. Blum versus Uretsky, and that we cite in, the, in our brief. And then Northeastern Florida Chamber of Contractors versus Jacksonville, and which is a 1993 case. And what's that? What's the site for it? Uh, 508 U.S. 656, okay. 1993. Now, again, getting back to the, the ripeness issue in particular, if, as we go through the list of cases, it seems that the facial challenges have always been permitted in situations similar to this. The key question is, has it been applied? So National Parks Conservation Association hasn't been applied. No prediction that it might be applied, therefore not right. Uh, Thomas Union versus Carbide is, I think, particularly instructive because there, the, the case preceding that was held unripe because there had not yet been a, an arbitration under the uh, federal insecticide law. But by the time that case came to the court, there had been an arbitration that had passed. And on that basis, the court said, yes, this is uh, a ripe controversy because here it's been applied. And there was no finding of mootness, even though that arbitration was done. And that's the same situation that we have here. Can I go back to standing for a minute? I thought yes, of, Your Honor. you may have looked this up and may have found something here. Suppose an organization that has a purely ideological interest, so it can't get into federal court, nonetheless can go before an agency. But they're not going to get into federal court. Now, suppose that agency then has a reg that they think is unlawful and makes their life more difficult. I guess that the fact that they suffer a procedural injury would not get them into court. They're already somebody who doesn't. They don't. So I can imagine cases saying that. Contrast that with the case of a person who has a very concrete, specific injury, a terrible allergy to chemical X. And they often litigate that there's too much chemical X. And now they're before an agency, and they frequently complain about chemical X. But they don't have a particular case, but they'll often be there. Now, the agency promulgates a procedural regulation that hurts those people who normally have a concrete injury. All right? There I wonder if that purely procedural injury cannot serve as a basis for standing. Now, to the cases asked, so I'm contrasting the two kinds of questions, and I wonder what you found in the cases as to the second kind as opposed to the first kind, and you're free to answer this as one word, nothing. Go look it up yourself, which is a fair comment. Well, Justice Breyer, you know, of course, our case is not that difficult because we think we have on the ground. I think you're like the sec. But I think there is room under the — so the FEC versus Atkins case is the informational injury case. And then there's the Havens case, which stated that groups that sought to fight redlining in loaning for uh, — discriminatorily loaning in neighborhoods had organizational standing — not representational, as, as we claim here through our members, but actual re uh, representation in and of themselves. And I think when you combine those cases together, I think there is some room for that finding that there is that injury. But I would, I would point out here that the, we don't claim it, and even though the Court of Appeals, again, talked quite a bit about it, it ultimately tied it back, and even if it didn't do a job that this Court found to be sufficient, I think the focus really has to be on the district court, as that is what originally 
looked at the declarations and did a very good job of discussing the on-the-ground injuries suffered combined with the procedural injuries. Uh, can I ask you about northeastern Florida? I have dug that out. I'm, I don't think it, it supports what you say. Uh, in its complaint, what, what was going on here is that there was uh, um, uh, a minority uh, business preference uh, adopted by uh, the city of uh, Jacksonville, and some contractors who were not minorities sued, saying that this was in, in violation of uh, the Constitution. And what happened, what the Court said about standing was, in its complaint, Petitioner alleged that many of its members regularly bid on and perform construction works. Now, if it had stopped there, it might fit your case. But then it went on to say, and that they would have bid on designated set-aside contracts, but for the restrictions imposed. As I read the case, there were, there were designated contracts, which they said we would have bid on them, but, but we didn't because of this. Uh, the, the, what, what the case involved was the assertion by the city that you, you don't have standing unless you can show you would have been awarded the contract. And we said, no, no, you don't have to be awarded it, but if indeed you were, you, you would have been a bidder in that contract, but for this law, that's enough for standing. So that's not this case. But I think the record supports the same kind of assertion. So, for instance, if you look at Jim Bensman's declaration at page 71A of the petition appendix, it says how on those timber sales he would have commented it and appealed them if he was given the opportunity, and he would like to go back there if he could preserve the quality of those areas that he visited. And you have — Where's there? He'd like to go back where? He would like to go back to the areas in where those 20 timber sales are, some of which he had been to before and would like to return to. And, I, and the supplemental declarations, uh, when this came up again in the government pressed because they asked for more specifics, those specifics were provided. And so, for instance, at the joint appendix at page uh, 90, you have Eric Ryberg using the Weiser River drainage and talking about how he wasn't even getting notice of that, only because he happened to be personally familiar with the area. Was he able to communicate his views to the Forest Service? And it actually ended up changing what the Forest Service did, because he just happened to find out and he happened to know it. So that's a specific This, is a, this isn't one of those <coughs> after-submitted declarations, is it? That, that latest one I referred to is, yes, Your Honor. Well, don't we generally not look at after-submitted declarations in determining standing? Uh, Your Honor, I don't think that's correct. I think the Court can look at any documents in the record which show standing at the time of the suit. So if you — if yesterday you submitted a declaration, we would look at that? Well, the, the cases that the government provided for rejecting declarations were offered submitted to this Court, or certainly an appellate court. And I agree that's more problematic. Or it would have been more problematic if the district court had — uh, excluded the documents and, and said it's not going to look at them. We'd be looking at a, an abusive discretion standard like was at issue in Lujan versus National Wildlife Federation. But certainly when a, an appellate court takes up a record from a district court, it's entitled to look at all the evidence submitted and especially when it's a case like standing or a, an issue like standing where it's a constitutional question that is important, and you may look at all the circumstances. There's no reason to reject uh, later filed declarations. But again, we don't rely on those alone. We think it's the totality of everything that supports when the comments. Later, later filed, where along the district court proceedings were they filed? They were submitted uh, after the judgment setting aside the regulations. There was litigation over the government's stay motion pending appeal. So if, if you lose that again, you figure, well, I've got some more, I can get some more declarations. In other words, the reason we don't look at after-submitted declarations is because there has to be, under the normal rules, an end to litigation at a particular time. It seemed to me this would be an endless process. You know, the, every time the district court identifies a particular flaw, you'd say, okay, here's a declaration. And then they said, well, there's another basis. Well, here's another declaration. I'm not sure that that's what our case is sanctioned. Well, the, 
The district court didn't find a flaw. It found that we had standing. It was the government reiterated its standing argument in the context of a stay. It essentially opened the door by arguing again, hey, you have no standing in addition to we should get a stay because of the equities. And so it seems perfectly appropriate in that circumstance to submit additional declarations. We didn't just file them out of the blue because we You filed them after judgment, right? We did. But I think also the issue is there's been many decisions of the Court which say, you know, standing after the fact isn't going to do you any good. And what I think it's important to keep clear here is that the declarations were later filed, but they referred to events going on before the judgment came down. So we have declarations at the time of the complaint, very specific. The government concedes the very specific. They talked about both the Burnt Ridge sale and the regulations. We have the Bensman Declaration at the time of the merits consideration, which showed that the case was not moot, that he was still being subjected to these regulations and being denied notice and comment. And then we have additional declarations after the fact of the government — I'm sorry, of the district court's decision, which buttressed all of the above. And it seems appropriate under that circumstance, in light of the the statements by the court that I discussed in, in the Defender's case and elsewhere, that standing is a practical inquiry, that standing should be found in such circumstances. Do you want to say a word about the Ninth Circuit making the law for the entire nation uh, on a controversial question? Normally the circuit just rules for its, its own area. Well, I think there's a difference, Your Honor, between setting aside a reg- regulation under the Administrative Procedure Act and what would normally be some sort of nationwide injunction, such as where you had Say you challenge a local timber, uh, local forest service district for not analyzing NEPA correctly, and the court not only set aside that action but said, oh, and by the way, anywhere else in the country that's doing it like this, you're enjoined too. I think it's a very different question where you have a, a regulation that's being challenged under the APA. And it's always been the court's assumption that setting aside a regulation, which the APA uh, commands a district court to do, also using its discretion, means that it is set aside without geographic limitation. And so I I think, you know, the Ninth Circuit may have uh, said a bit much to say it was compelled by the text of the APA, but I do believe that the district court properly weighed the Mendoza interests. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. Mr. Neger, you have three minutes. Uh, Several points, Mr. Chief Justice. First, our, um, the Burnt Ridge Project illustrates the way we think this, uh, an issue like this should be resolved and shows why the, the sentence from National Wildlife Federation that you quoted, Mr. Chief Justice, disposes of this case. And that is that the, the, a regulation, particularly a procedural regulation whose only relevance is in, a, is in an agency proceeding for approving a site-specific activity, that can only be challenged in connection with that site-specific activity. That's what the sentence in National Wildlife Federation was driving at. That's what Section 702 says when you, when you can challenge the agency action that aggrieves you. Um, and that is consistent with what this Court said in National Wildlife Federation, that a, a, uh, a court should intervene only when and to the extent that someone is harmed. So this regulation can only harm someone. Say, the sentence says this is our ordinary practice. He didn't say it's the, it's the limit on our practice. He was talking about injunction. I was talking about the about uh, ri- ripeness under the APA. But it, tie, it ties in it, it ties into the injunctive relief. If I could just address that for the moment, I, I, uh, injunctive relief is is discretionary. And Section 702 of the APA says nothing in the statute. Uh, uh, limits a court's ability to uh, deny relief on appropriate uh, equitable grounds. Uh, and this is best illustrated by the — suppose a regulation was challenged by the defendant in a criminal conviction, and the plaintiff says the regulation is invalid on its face. The APA set, says set it aside, but surely the district court dismissing that indictment would not be setting aside the regulation on a nationwide basis. The effect of a declaratory judgment, even one — rendered in the course of dismissing an indictment, if you call that a declaration, uh, is, is governed by the law of judgments, not by, not by a court reaching out and extending its ruling to people and forests and projects that are not before 
uh, not before the Court. And the Burnt Ridge Project shows the way in which this could be challenged. A particular project where there was not an appeal, if someone wants to object to the project on that ground or any other ground, uh, uh, he, he can challenge that project. And there may be other grounds on which that project might be invalid, which is an additional reason not to anticipate a legal defect, uh, but to uh, but to wait until it's applied. The final thing I wanted to say is about the claim of procedural injury and that this might be like FOIA or something like this. I think it's instructive that, that the ARA does, is not written in terms of conferring rights on individuals. It's a direction to the Forest Service to prepare a, a, to, to establish an appeal mechanism. In other words, do what the agency normally does to establish uh, procedures for administering things. It, there's, there's certainly nothing in the text to suggest that it was intended to confer the extraordinary sort of um, a right of immediate access to court for purely procedural grounds. It was just meant to fine-tune the agency's own internal administrative procedures, which Section 706 of the APA makes clear can only be challenged in a challenge to final agency action in which the procedures are applied. Thank you, Mr. Needler. The case is submitted.